Hey everyone and welcome back to Pucks and Pages. My name is Steven, that is my book-loving wife, Liberty. We're a married couple with different interests and we try to bring each other into our hobbies by discussing the latest news in both books and sports. And today is all about them books, about them books. If there was ever a book episode, this is it, because like, whew, this is the longest set of notes I've ever had for a book episode. That's exciting because I like to live life on the edge with no notes. Yeah, because you're crazy. But the first big deal, I rolled up my sleeves. Like, this is a big deal. This is getting very serious, guys. We have the Shadow and Bone TV adaptation to discuss. And, like, I tried to be coherent when I was writing my notes. But let's be honest, um, if all you hear is vulcra screeching sounds, like, that's just how it's going to be. Boy, that's going to be fun to edit. So I found someone who basically broke down the episodes the way that I would have broken them down. So I'm going to read that to you real fast before we actually get into discussing it. Episodes one and two. Oh my God, Alina's the sun summoner who can't summon the sun. Episodes three and four. Crow's heist. Episode five. Winterfett and so many ships. Yeah. Episode six. Helnick. Episode seven and eight. Kazbrecker. 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 And that was how they summed up the show. I hope there's more to it than just that. Yes, there is. But I appreciate you not going into it because uh, I have never read the books and or seen the show. So the show There's that. To vaguely summarize the Grisha verse, you have a bunch of people who can do what they call the small science, which we would call magic, who can summon wind or fire or slow your heart or speed up your heart rate heal injuries, stuff like that. Got it. In Ravka, hundreds of years ago, someone accidentally created what they call the Shadow Fold, which separated Ravka into the East and the West. The West is the side that has all the harbors on it, so they're able to ship out things, receive things, and be able to basically be its own country. Whereas East Ravka is isolated by the Fjordans above them who want to kill them, and the Shu Mountains below them who were also not their allies. So in order for them to have access to the things that sustain them, they have to cross the Shadow Fold, which is full of these demons who are out to kill you. Fun. And that's where the story starts, with a map maker named Alina Starkov and her friend Mal Uretsev. I feel like, despite the fact that they've obviously changed a lot in order to compress more characters in than are technically supposed to if you're going by the books, and the fact that it is not 100% compliant to the timeline and the way that the whole thing works, I still had a really good time and I really enjoyed it. I remember I kept having to pause because I was live blogging the whole thing and you can find everything I said on my blog which will be linked in the show notes. Or in our Twitter, as it turns out. Yes. Yeah. And there was just so much to love and enjoy about this, and I felt like it was pretty true to the characters if it wasn't technically true to the plot, per se. Because basically, the events of Shadow and Bone all happened years before the events of Six of Crows. So I feel like people felt that the fan base wasn't willing to watch years of Shadow and Bone stuff before ever meeting the Six of Crows characters. Boy, were they wrong. No, they were correct. Really? Because I wouldn't have been willing to watch like Shadow and Bone, Siege and Storm, Ruin and Rising become episodes of the TV show without even hinting at what's happening 
with the Six of Crows characters. So I think it was a wise choice. It just definitely changed the feel of everything. And it completely expanded the worldview from Shadow and Bone, which was all Alina Starkov and like what she was going through. But I thought I would highlight a few things that I really enjoyed from the show, because otherwise I'm going to be talking in depth about every single episode. The first one being the DeCoppel painting, which if you've seen the episode, you know, it's hilarious. And then there's a moment between Kaz Brecker and Inej Gaffa where Inej is someone who was sold by a slaver and given an indenture at a brothel called the Menagerie. And there's a moment when Kaz is telling Inej that he did not buy her, but he was specifically paying off her indenture so she could work for him instead of being tied to the Menagerie. And... The reason that I enjoy this so much is because he understands Inej and what she's gone through and understands that he needs to point out that he did not purchase her because you cannot purchase people. That's not how it's supposed to work. And by specifying that he was paying off her indenture instead says a lot to his like emotional intelligence and his understanding of his best friend. And like that was a very cute moment. It made me very soft and emotional. Okay. I I would say I understand, but I don't. No, you haven't read these. You won't get most of this, which is fine. I'm here for moral support. Yes. And then we had a moment between Jesper Fahey and Kaz Brecker where they're talking about the job that they're trying to do. And Kaz mentioning that Jesper is always asking for a demolitions expert for every job. And if you've read Six of Crows, you know why that's like a, a moment where you're like, hey, hey, just you wait. Just you wait, because we have a character later on in the series that's a demolitions expert. Yeah, I figured as much. It'd be weird if you talked about it and it wasn't because of that. Right. And then we had an introduction of two characters who I don't feel like were in the books, and it rounds out another character completely. So we've got two characters who are Mal's friends from his unit who are both hilarious and stupid, and I love them for no reason. And I hate what happens to them, but I love them. And I feel like it takes a character who in the books was pretty flat and takes Mal from being like this very flat character who's just a love interest and doesn't have any like real friends or anything outside of that identity and sort of broadens him as a character. Because I found that during the show, I enjoyed Mal so much more than I did in the books. In the books, I hated Mal. And I feel like that was a pretty common theme for people who've read the books. Suddenly watching the show and being like, I do ship them together the way I was supposed to in the books. They're so cute. I like them. (laughs) And you really didn't have that in the books the way that I feel like you were supposed to. Yeah. I remember one of the first things I wrote when I was live blogging is, okay, so I've discovered how you can get me to like Mel. And then I laid out what they did in the show. And I was like, so that's all it takes for me to like Mel, apparently. Yeah. And then we also have the introduction of characters who are in the books, but they don't have a huge impact until later on in books two or three or seven or eight in the Grishaverse. And so, like, for me, it was so nice just to see these characters and to see them the way I felt like they should be portrayed. Specifically, Nadia, Jenya, and David, who are characters in the Little Palace, which is where Alina goes to study being a Grisha. Grisha. It did. We all said it one way, and apparently it was wrong, because in the show, Grisha is said Grisha, Grisha with an E instead of an I. Gotcha. I mean, technically, the 
pronunciation in the show is probably accurate, but it's hard to. I was going to say they're probably right there considering they had like actual. Lee Bardugo was on the set, set to a lot make sure of the they time, said it, yeah. and she was an executive producer for the show. So, however they say it on the show is how you say it. But I have only ever heard it called the Grisha verse until like two days ago. And so. now everybody's like, whoa, whoa, we've been screwing that up for a while now. Whoops. Unless you've been listening to the books, which I don't do. So. Yeah. And then my next line for my notes just says, the goat. This was not in the books. We're talking about Tom Brady? No, oh, we're not. Man. It was not in the books, but I love him, and I would sacrifice my firstborn child for him. Okay. So. I think that also, the thing with the goat, expands my love for Jesper, who was already one of my favorite characters from the books. But, like, TV show Jesper is, like, we would have been best friends. Like, (laughs) I would have wanted to be your best friend from the moment I met you. Because he likes goats? No, because of other things that happen. But the goat thing helps. Yeah. You do like little goats. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then my next line just says, Nina and Matthias. And so it's like, if you know, you know, because they're one of the ships that I have for the Grishaverse or Grishaverse. And they do such a good job accurately portraying Nina and Matthias that, like, I just want more. I just want more of their interaction and their banter. And, like, it's a hate-to-love scenario that's actually hate-to-love because Matthias is a, quote, witch hunter and she is a, quote, witch. Yeah. So... Like, it's actually hate to love. And I enjoyed all of their interactions. A couple specific ones I have are Nina and Matthias are in in a whale hunter hut. And they're trying to warm up because they just swam out of the freezing ocean. And she's going on about how he needs to stop being such a prude. And you're a man just like everyone else. You have nothing to hide, blah, 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 blah. And then she turns around and sees him half naked. And she's just like gaping at him open mouthed. And I'm like, Nina, honey. Like, I mean, yes, but honey. Yeah. And then they brought up one of the things that was in the books. And it made me so happy. And it was Nina and her waffles. And if you know, you know. And And if you don't, you just have a confused look on your face, just like me. Yeah. So they did a really good job throughout this, making these small, like, nods of the head to things that happen later in the books that I really enjoyed. Nina and her waffles. You've got Kaz's confrontation with Pekka Rollins, which stabbed me in the gut because Pekka Rollins is putting in to Kaz saying, like, this is my job, not your job, blah, 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 blah. And they were talking about how if you were to cross me, I would toss you in the harbor. And if you have read the books, that was just a knife in your gut, him saying that to Kaz. I can't explain to you what that feels like besides, like, twisting a knife. But we also had this thing where they had to adjust for the times, I feel like, because when Lee Bardugo wrote the original trilogy, starting with Shadow and Bone... Things were a lot less diverse than they are in the show, and they specifically adjusted that because they realized they needed to be more diverse as a TV show than she was in the books. And her books, I think, are like 10 years old or more for the original Grisha trilogy. So she's grown and developed as a writer, and so I feel like they did a good job making it true to the story while also becoming more diverse, and I really appreciated that. It's good. We also had what I called the line 
from General Kirigan, which I've actually said on the podcast before talking to you, and I don't think you ever realized it was a line from a book. But again, haven't read the book. No. Cut me some slack. Seriously. Like, no, holy I, crap. I don't blame you for not catching the reference. It's just, to me, it's really funny because if you know, you know. That'll be the name of this episode. If you know, you know. Uh, we also had Nina's line that what's not natural is for someone to be as stupid as they are tall. And then something that was different that I enjoyed is Kaz Brecker's mission outfit. So they have a few different missions throughout this season and like his outfits are so hilarious and I love them. I didn't realize that these six episodes were the entire season. They're not doing eight any episodes. other ones. Eight episodes? Eight episodes for season one, and then I have no idea about season two. Okay. So you watched how many this week? All eight? Yes. Holy crap. In one day. That's craziness. I would have watched it again if I had the time, if I'm being honest. <laughs> but there was one concern that I had for this new way to introduce the fans to the Six of Crows. Because they had to find a way to introduce these characters while still trying to maintain their backstories. And they did a really good job with that with Nina. They did a decent job of that with Kaz with hinting at other things that we won't see yet because it's not time for it yet. But my problem here is with Inej. And like I said before, she was someone who was grabbed and sold by slavers from the Suli caravan that she was in with her mother and her brother. And you're trying to tell me that she's going to go on a mission to steal the Sun Summoner, who is a person, a living person, for a million Kruga. Like, I don't know that I buy into that line of thought, given her character growth and development throughout the rest of the series and where she goes from there. So I don't know that I can buy into that. I don't think she would ever have done it. I don't think she would have left Kirch at all. So... They kind of address that in little ways throughout the episodes, but it doesn't ever get to the heart of what I consider to be the main problem there. Gotcha. Oh, God, I've been talking a long time. Okay, last note. (laughs) (laughs) I'll believe it when I see it. Well, literally all my last note says is that it has set up for the next season really well. I need it now. I know nothing about the next season, but like, if they haven't started filming, what are you doing? Get all the cast together now. Do yeah. it. We need this yesterday, not... not. I know. do need it yesterday because yeah. I finished it the day before yesterday. Yeah. So, I perfect. do. I was going to say, I don't think I've ever seen you light up so much for a book episode before, but like literally you're just like... <gasps> all day on Friday. Like, all I was doing was grinning ear to ear. I was so freaking happy because besides that one thing that I was concerned with that was partially addressed, it was such a good adaptation. Even though it wasn't 100% true to the series, it was still done with so much love and care. And like having the author as the executive producer was the right choice. Yeah. It's best to have them actually involved through the whole process and the decision-making process, unlike like Harry Potter, where it was just a freaking mess. Well, and like I was trying to think for the past couple days of how I was going to talk about it with just it being a giant gush fest. And like the way that I thought about it is so you have on one end of the spectrum the one by John Mars, which I watched in February, versus on the other end of the spectrum a 100% true to the book adaptation for something that doesn't actually exist and can never exist but like in the perfect world it would be a hundred percent true all the same lines all the same notes all the same themes yeah 
And like this adaptation, despite the changes they had to make to include characters that don't exist in the Shadow and Bone book, still falls closer to the 100% true than it does to the John Mars adaptation of his book. So I think that says a lot and gives us a lot of things that we had to be like surprised by, especially if you already knew the series. There wasn't going to be a lot to shock you if they hadn't done these changes and things. But that was a lot of discussing Shadow and Bone. I think that's the longest individual topic we've ever talked about. Probably true. Like, I would even argue probably longer than, like, draft days and things like that. Possible. Yeah. But moving into the book news that is not Six of Crows or Shadow and Bone related, there are rumors abounding that there could be a Game of Thrones season finale redo where they refilm, rewrite, re-everything for the finale. But the rumor is all based on a vague tweet that HBO sent out saying winter is coming. And so that caused some fans to assume a redo of the finale is what it meant, while other fans are remembering that there are several Game of Thrones prequels that are currently in the works for adaptation. So it's like, if you're paying attention to what's happening with all of Game of Thrones, you're You're not going to assume that. Yeah, it's it's more than likely one of the prequels. Like, even I know a little bit about this, and... It's just, like, why you, you've you already butchered the ending. Why try to do something different? Like, I don't think that they are. I think these fans are just completely off base. Yeah, and I would agree in that instance. It's just, like, there are a lot of stories, prequel-wise, that exist in the Game of Thrones universe as well. Like, you could even do stories based off of main characters coming up into where they are, like, situationally. Like, so the prequels could be endless, realistically. and Like, I would love to see a prequel about the Hound. I think that would be a very interesting thing, you know? And so, I don't know. There's a lot of stuff that's out there where it's like, it could be done, it would probably be better to spend money and time on that than trying to redo a new ending. Right. Like, you've already done the damage with the final season and the finale being what it was. So I feel like, let's just let that lie. And move on to other things. You don't need to go back years later to try to fix that. Well, the reality is, too, like, you have to imagine you'd have to change multiple episodes to make the ending different than it was. Like, you couldn't just be like, all right, last episode, we're going to do this different now. It's like... I think it's just mistaken, fans. We also have found that the second season of The Witcher has officially wrapped. Thank God. There have been numerous halts in production due to the COVID pandemic, along with stunt-related injuries. I've heard about these injuries, yeah. but at the same time, you knew COVID was going to delay it. Like, right. It, well, it, it delayed, delayed everything. It delayed the Shadow and Bone series. It's delayed multiple movies at this point, so like no one is surprised. But Netflix released a production rap video on YouTube detailing the painstaking production cycle. And you hear from actors as well as people on hand from the crew. I'm just ready for more Witcher. I know that you liked it as well. I enjoyed The Witcher. I don't like the style of storytelling, which is coming from the books with all of the jumping around and the things not being in chronological order. I don't need things always to be in chronological order. I just need to be able to see where things fit. Yeah. And I feel like they don't do quite a great job with that. But maybe that's the whole point. And by the time you get to the end of the series, it's perfect. Yeah. I wouldn't know. I haven't read it. And then we had 
Reading Rainbow's LeVar Burton being announced as a guest host for Jeopardy. The episodes that he is going to be doing will run from July 26th to July 30th. He has been a lifelong advocate for children's literacy and has many people saying that he is the most qualified to carry on Alex Trebek's legacy and that he carries himself with the same dignified and respectful presence that Trebek did. I can see that. There was actually a petition that happened after Trebek passed away saying that he needs to be the full-time host. Yeah. But they wanted to try out a bunch of different people, so that didn't happen. But he's got a shot, I guess. Yeah, it's some of the stuff that I left out of the sports news because obviously you had quarterback uh, Aaron Rodgers do a couple episodes. And they're also including... I think Joe Buck, who based like a baseball sports announcer. You said that person's name like I should have known who they were. Yeah, and so it's just like there's a lot of people that they're having do it, and it's just like, oh, just no. I couldn't see Aaron Rodgers being the host. Well, and I didn't enjoy the week that they had Dr. Oz on the show. Like, no, what are you doing here? Go back to lying to people on your show. <laughs> but, I mean, I think he is someone I could probably watch and not have a problem with. Because I feel like he's got, like, the same, like, mannerisms almost. Yeah. And the last piece of news news I have for the week is that a couple of people connected to the Trump administration have gotten book deals in the past week. You have William Barr, who is Trump's former attorney general, who has recently sold a book about his time at the Justice Department. This will be his first book, and he's already been writing it for a couple of months now. Well, that makes sense, because usually speaking, you have to have something to present to get an actual book deal, so go figure that he's got that figured out. We also have Justice Amy Coney Barrett, who was Trump's last pick for the Supreme Court, who has sold a book. This one is garnering a $2 million advance for a book about how judges are not supposed to bring their personal feelings into how they rule. It's true. Well... I don't need her to be the one writing it. Like, you've got a set job. Why are you trying to now sell a book? Yeah, it's kind of frowned upon, but obviously in the past they have done it, so it's not like it's... Illegal? Yeah. Or unprecedented? It's not frowned upon by any means. Like, it's just kind of like... Oh, no, I think people are frowning upon it. Based on what I was reading, not a lot of people love that she got a book deal. I don't know. I I try not to play spectrum of that. I, I think both... Both ends should have the right to do it if they really feel like it. At the same time, it's like you're in a position where you're well-respected. You shouldn't have to do anything else to ever get by, you know? Well, like I said, she's got a set job. She doesn't really need it for the money. Yeah. Except she wants to hoard money, maybe. Yeah, by and large, as long as she doesn't commit any crazy felonies, she's probably not going to lose the job until she dies, so. Yeah. But then we technically have something I would still consider newsworthy, To discuss that isn't actual news. And it's the new releases for the month of May. Today is the last Thursday in April, the day this episode comes out. So I thought I'd discuss the new releases that will be coming out soon. That sounds like a good plan. And it turns out that I've already read five of them out of my list of 12. So like, yay. So the first one is Rogue Untouched, a Marvel heroines novel by Alyssa K. Whitney. It releases on May 4th. It is a new adult sci-fi and part of the Marvel Heroines series. I read this one through NetGalley and I rated it three stars. It's the novelization of Rogue's origin story, which 
did end up deviating from both the comics and the movies in multiple ways, but it was still a decent time. I enjoyed it. I don't think it's the next, like, great American novel, but it was still a fun time. Yeah. And if you like superheroes or X-Men, Rogue, I think it's definitely worth reading. It's right up your alley, too. Yeah. I also read Villainous by Stoney Williams and Jeff Sadzinski. It also releases on May 4th. It's a YA graphic novel. I read it through NetGalley, and I rated it 3.25 stars. Basically, an intern at the Coalition of Heroes discovers that their world of superheroes might be a facade and must decide what to do with that information. And it didn't take me long to read. It's a graphic novel. Maybe it took me an hour. Yeah. So not a lot of investment for the return. So Worthwhile just to kind of knock it out really quick. Well, and I like the premise because I like the idea that, like, your good guys aren't really the good guys and everything gets turned on its head and the bad guys aren't really as bad as you thought they were. That was a lot of fun. And this next one I read recently called Sunkissed by Casey West. It releases on May 4th as well. It is a YA contemporary romance that I read through NetGalley and rated it four stars. A girl and her family go to a family-based resort for the summer, and there she meets a guy who works for the resort, and despite this boy being off-limits, wants to get to know him better. It also includes a battle of the bands and a social media-savvy sister. Oh, man. It was a fun read. It's good for the summer, so that's definitely worth your time. Another May 4th release is Counting Down With You by Tashi Buayan, I believe is how you pronounce her last name. It's another YA contemporary slash romance that I read on NetGalley. This one I rated four stars. It's a good girl and bad boy who agree to a fake dating scenario that gets a little too real while her family is away for three weeks. And this does a good job of discussing, like, race and privilege and all these other serious topics. And then the last of the May releases that I've already read is The Soulmate Equation by Christina Lauren. This one releases on May 18th. It's an adult romance with some what I call speculative fiction elements, sci-fi elements, that I read on NetGalley and rated 4.25 stars. A single mom named Jess and the CEO of a genetics-based matchmaking company, Dr. River Pena, decide to give it a shot when they are matched at a 98% compatibility level. And then I have seven new releases coming out in May that I have not read yet. This is your time for lists. It definitely is, but more fun than, like, baseball lists. Realm Breaker by Victoria Aviard releases on May 4th. It's a YA fantasy novel. It is also the first book in a new fantasy series, and this one kind of sounds interesting to me. I don't know because I haven't read anything from her past the Red Queen series that was like hit or miss for most people. In this one, a girl discovers that she is the last of an ancient bloodline and the last hope to save the world from destruction. She's joined by a squire who is forced to choose between home and honor, an immortal avenging a broken promise, an assassin who is exiled and bloodthirsty, an ancient sorceress whose riddles hide an eerie foresight, a forger with a secret past, and a bounty hunter with a score to settle. And I said found family trope question mark? Because <laughs> I'm always down for that. Yeah. Also on May 4th, we have Take Me Home Tonight by Morgan Matson. 
It's a YA contemporary novel about two best friends, Kat and Stevie, who sneak away from the suburbs to spend a night in New York City. But their best laid plans are for naught when they're barely off the train and things start to go wrong. From destroyed phones to family drama to ex-drama, all they know is that they have to make it back to Grand Central before the clock strikes midnight, or they turn into pumpkins. They don't turn into pumpkins. Well, I mean, that's what it sounds like. And then one that I'm super excited about is V.E. Schwab's Extraordinary Number Zero by V.E. Schwab. This releases on May 5th. It is a comic and technically a lead up to a three-issue comic series, so like an introductory comic. It's set in the years between Vicious and Vengeful, and we follow a girl named Charlotte Tills who survives a bus crash and becomes an EO. I'm all about this. Right? Did we already order this? We did not already order this. This is ridiculous. We need to do this right now. (laughs) I know it's right up our alley. Yeah. Trying to figure out right now where we can get a copy of it. (laughs) To the internet. Yeah. And then one that you will probably not be adding to your cart is People We Meet on Vacation by Emily Henry. It releases on May 11th. It's an adult romance, so not exactly up your alley per se. But it's about two best friends who have been going on vacations together for years up until two years ago when everything was ruined. But can one final vacation be enough to fix their relationship? I assume so. It's a romance. You're correct, though. Romance and me. Not a good combination. And then one that I know is super popular right now is Heartstopper. It's got Volume 4 by Alice Oseman coming out on May 13th. It's a YA graphic novel series. Basically, boy meets boy, boys fall in love. The graphic novels are about life, love, and everything in between at a UK boarding school. This is a super popular series, so I'm sure it's going to be disappearing off the shelves faster than they can stock it. Another one that is going to be pretty popular is Mr. Impossible by Maggie Stiefvater. Releases on May 18th. It's a, they want to say YA, I think it's a new adult fantasy magical realism novel, and it's book number two in the Dreamer trilogy. This series takes place after the Raven Boys and includes some of those characters. This is a series about Ronan Lynch, his family, and his friends. I read the Raven Cycle, but I haven't read any from the Dreamer trilogy, but I know it's supposed to be really good if you like Maggie Steve Otter in general. And then the last book on the new release list is The Anthropocene Reviewed by John Green. It releases on May 18th as well. It is a nonfiction novel. They're personal essays by John Green reviewing different facets of the human-centered planet on a five-star scale. Includes reviews for QWERTY keyboards, sunsets, and penguins of Madagascar. (laughs) Which, obviously, five stars for penguins of Madagascar, right? Yeah. Obviously. But this is sort of a new thing for him. He's only ever written fiction before. So I think if you like his podcast, which is also called The Anthropocene Reviewed, you will probably like this. I just haven't ever listened to the podcast, so I don't know how I would feel about it. Right. As for what I've been reading over the past week, I finally read a book talk gym, as the young ones would call it. Maybe the young ones wouldn't call it that. The Octonomy, Fosbit Files Prologue by Trevor Allen Forrest. This is a backlist from 2020, from last spring. It's book number one in the Octonomy. It's an adult fantasy slash absurdist novel is what I've been calling it. 
Yeah, that, that is the way you've been describing it all week long, so. I ended up rating this four stars. Specifically from my review, I said that the novel is about this secret organization called the Octonumi with a tragic past. During this book, the organization faces a schism and a lot of badness ensues. However, the plot of this book is not the point of this book, if we're being honest. The point of the book is to introduce the reader into an amazing and fantastical world that feels unending. Imagine when Harry first experiences Diagon Alley for the first time and all the magic and wonder he feels. And the Octonumi is like that, plus cocaine and steroids. It is so much weirder and grosser and funnier and so much fun to read. I think for me, there were a couple of downsides to this that led it to only being a four star and not rated higher, one of which is how much effort it takes to read. Literally, there are definitions, there are ways to pronounce things, like you've got a list in the back of the book, you've got a bookmark that serves as a way to look things up, but also there is an app you can download and hear things pronounced the way they're supposed to be, which I used a lot. So it just requires a little more effort. And then I think the second downside is that that app also has an artificial reality element that doesn't work perfectly. So if you're expecting it to be perfect, you're going to be a little disappointed with that. But it was a lot of fun to read. It was absurd. I really had a good time. That's good. And the second and last book I finished for the week, because, dear God, I finally did it. I hit my 2021 goal. I only read two books during a week. I read A Beautifully Foolish Endeavor by Hank Green. It's a backlist from 2020. It's book number two in the Carl's duology and an adult sci-fi novel. I originally rated this one 4.25 stars. Upon reread, I don't know if I would stick with that or go down to a four, but that might just be the reread and not actually how I feel about the book itself. Yeah. But I reread it to discuss on the podcast, and we'll start that later in the episode. But this one is just hard to explain what it's about because you have to have read the first one, but at the same time, I can't go too in-depth because you haven't finished it. But I said, this is a continued story about contact with aliens after the events of book one. April, Maya, Robin, Andy, and Miranda all have stories to tell. As well as Carl. And Carl. What I plan on reading next includes The Vanishing Stare by Maureen Johnson, a backlist from 2019, and book number two in the Truly Devious series, which are YA mystery novels. Rereading this one before the next one comes out. And for the synopsis, I basically said, after the craziness of book one, a cold case is still cold, a student is dead, and another is on the run, and Stevie Bell's chances of staying at the school to solve the mystery is getting slimmer and slimmer as her conservative parents tighten the reins. And then the next book, and probably the only other book I will finish next week, is Strange Fire by Tommy Wallach. It's a backlist from 2017 and a book on my read it or leave it in 2021 list. It is book number one in the Anchor and Sophia series. It's technically a YA fantasy novel. The synopsis on Goodreads is pretty vague, so I tried to stick with something as vague as that. Basically, the first generation of man is brought low through its greed and a god's daughter who brought fire and devastation to the world. From that began a new religion. But as the years stretch from the first generation of man to now, there are people looking to restore the old ways. And this book is the beginning of a holy war. Sounds a little heavy. Yeah. 
Sounds exciting, though. A good one to read. Yeah, this one I got a few years ago at a library sale, and it's just been sitting on my shelf, so that's why it's on my read it or leave it list, because, like, I need to get to it. Yeah. But if I have time, I also recently bought a novella, so I might start on that. I don't know if I'll have time to finish it as well, because we're also getting our shots this week, and I might just be passed out on the floor by the end of the week. Just to clarify, I will not let her be on the floor. (laughs) (laughs) I might be passed out somewhere in the house. Yes. That's not the floor. On the bed, on the couch, wherever. That's more comfortable than the floor. Yes. Just don't make me out to be the worst husband of the the year award. No, you will also be on the floor passed out with me. Yeah. I'm more likely to be on the floor. I could fall asleep anywhere properly. That's true. But in the world of what I read this week was the first half of the book you just mentioned. What's the title of the book I just mentioned? (laughs) I, I have a little bit of a headache going, so I don't remember, but... You read the first half of A Beautifully Foolish Endeavor by Hank Green. Yeah. They, the books have really ridiculous names, and I think that's on my purpose. problem with them. I feel him. like it's on purpose. That's yeah. just his kind of humor. He wants people to have to say really weird things. Yeah. I'm enjoying it so far. I feel like, again, this book is kind of like putting a lot of the pieces into place in the first half for what's going to go down in the end, just like the first book did, so... There was one day this week I had to cut off my reading with about 50 pages left in the book because I was taking a break to watch the Shadow and Bone eight episodes. Yeah. And I'm like, is this really where page 400 leaves off? Because, like, man, there's a lot of stuff to get done in 50 pages because this is my second time reading it. I know what happens. And I was just like, it did not feel like everything happened in the last 50 pages that happens in the last 50 pages. But no, it's there. Yeah. Like, I enjoy the way it's written. So, like, it's still in chronological order. It's just, like, Different. individual people's perspectives. Yeah. And and so, like, there's a couple times where the timeline crosses over and my brain was just like, oh, that. Meanwhile, back on the ranch. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. So, like, I enjoyed it. I think the character development changes a little bit because, like, obviously it has to if your friend is dead you're gonna become a different person a little bit right so you see kind of the ups and downs of the early on portion of what happened after everything went down and I think that was important I think it was important to see that Maya kind of has trouble still being a person with April gone even though April was kind of a bad person kind of April was a bad person to Maya and still Maya had trouble functioning without her in the world And I feel like that was important to see. Yeah. I also think it was important to see the ways in which Andy was trying to live his life after April's passing. How it sort of made it easier for, as you'll see later in the books, but other people and things to influence him. Because he didn't have the gravity well of April's power, her influence. Well, he became a hermit for a little while, so it's like... yeah. It was weird seeing him like that because it's like you were so much part of like everything that was going on. And then you're just like, nah, I'm done. Well, I feel like that comes from April no longer being there to yeah. sort of influence how people are living their lives. Right. You see that build up. You see a lot of like the internal strife that I think that Miranda has with trying to go work for Altus. Like, I think that was a really tough one for me because it's like, how do you get past that and like I know there's underlying reasons as to why she's going there but like it's just like uh I feel that like would be a tough decision guilt to has to weigh down on her a lot but yeah. you had Andy who was influenced by what is called the book of good times 
And he was told to tell her to do it. And so he did. And she's like, well, Andy wouldn't tell me to do it unless I should be doing it. Right. right? Exactly. But yeah. So at the end of the first book, you had Andy have a knock on his door and a text that was from April's phone number saying, knock, knock. That turned out to be a book. Right. And it's called The Book of Good Times. <laughs> Which is such a weird title, considering... These were not good times. No. These were not the good times. They weren't as bad of bad times, but they were not the, like, what you would retrospectively think as the good times. And so you've got a book basically giving Andy advice about what to do with his life, his relationships, his money... And so he starts following what the book tells him to do. Yeah. And ends up meeting a girl named Bex who works at Subway. She's a sandwich artist. Yeah. And I thought that was a little funny. It was meant to be really funny, and it was. Because, like, he was so closed off to the world that, like, he's like, oh, I guess I'll just go ask the sandwich artist to go do this thing that the book told me to do. Well, and what I thought was interesting is, like, from all his social media, you wouldn't expect him to not have anyone to go to a thing with. Right. You would expect him to be surrounded by an entourage or friends or family or something, someone he felt he could connect with. Right. But instead, he ends up asking the sandwich artist because that's who he has to ask. Albeit part of the reason is because it's a weird thing and he doesn't want to ask his roommate to do it. And like, yeah, makes sense. But still to not even be able to count on one hand how many people you have you can do something like that with. Yeah. And let's let's be honest, Bex is a phenomenal character. I think she is really kind of perfect to balance out Andy's current mental status. I was going to say BS, but yeah. Yeah. Like that stupid game night that they host was fantastic. I wouldn't play a game like that, but I understand someone creating a game like that. I'm shocked that you wouldn't play a game like that because I feel like as a English-based major style, like you would enjoy something like that. Because it's like a challenge to try to get the person to say the word with other words. Breaking down words and then trying to get the other person to guess all the correct words to guess the big word just sounds like a game that takes too much work. So you're you're a lazy English person. <laughs> I guess. I'm bad at any sort of game where I have to make you guess something, like Pictionary or Charades. I'm bad at those games. Like, yeah. I don't know. Why do you not connect the dots the way I connect the dots? I would have gotten this 10 minutes ago. So that just wouldn't work for me. Yeah. But it was cute to see them like all together hanging out as like a friend group. Yeah. But it also has a stark contrast to like the moments in Andy's life where he's just like on his own doing his own thing. And it's sort of like bittersweet that he does have this moment before everything goes to heck. Yeah, it, it was nice to kind of see things start to go good for him when for a while it was just like downer, 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 downer. So at least at the beginning of the book, that's kind of the way it seems. So. And then Maya is just all over the place. like She was a hot mess. Yeah. And I could see how someone that smart could get to the point where she's going down these sort of research rabbit holes that ends up leading her to this tiny town. In New Jersey. Yeah. I don't know how far you are. I don't remember the halfway point. So I can go into it, but we're not quite there yet. So, like, she's in that small town, and, like, she goes to, like, the Cowtown place or whatever. Experiences a tad bit of racism in the small town in New Jersey, so it's like... If that's a tad bit of racism, then we have a very big racist problem. 
Yeah. Everywhere. Yeah. And she ends up tricking her the guy into selling them to this other woman that works in Cowtown. Yeah. You have these rocks that he's selling that are what I would call Carl-ish, like not behaving the way that rocks should yeah. in the normal world. The way we understand physics and things. Right. And so she gets someone to buy what he has on hand and convinces the lady to get the guy to believe that these are super valuable and rare and he needs to have as many as he can so that he can make a ton of money so that she can follow him because she's already been following him for the internet problem that's been happening in the town. She ends up following him back to a motel and he's like back behind there searching through their garbage which is tasty you know after she was already harassed because of this game fish yes fish was something that i i never enjoy any of the scenes i don't they're that all really fish. they're really creepy like big well, brother because, creepy because these people find her yeah and are told to like take Bye. what she has yeah. or do something to her and like it just, it all feels really creepy, especially when you pair it with the racism that she was already dealing with in this small town. I don't know how Maya could function as a human being there. I would have lost my mind. Yeah. We realize small towns are not for you, firstly. Well. <laughs> for many reasons. 18 years growing up in one. Definitely not. Yeah. But Maya ends up trying to figure out the situation with the internet by discussing it with the motel owner, but then also goes to try to find the rocks in the garbage where the guy was looking before he left. Yeah. And she ends up finding the Book of Good Times. Part two. Does it actually say volume two on there? I, think I feel it, like it does not. Pretty sure, but... Okay, so yeah, I pulled it up. It is just the Book of Good Times on the cover. That's good. Of Maya's book as well. And there she starts to see the same instructions that it originally gave Andy, which is don't tell anyone about this, don't post Instagram stories, blah, blah, blah. It also tells her to come back in three weeks. It's like super random. Could you imagine if you were like, okay, this book says to come back in three weeks. I'm just going to sit around and do nothing in this tiny hill bunk town for three weeks. Well, she's not exactly doing nothing, but she is not super busy. Yeah. And at the same time, we're starting to see a recession hit the United States. For that matter, I think the whole world is what it sounded like originally. But yeah, like large portions of people will call it that. Right. They're dealing with less consumer spending, less labor participation, and wages being decreased in the time since the Carls have left. And we see an introduction of something called the thread which is someone that puts up content on YouTube, but you don't know who they are. They don't have ads, so they're not doing it to make money. They're doing it to discuss topics that they think need a lot of depth and exploration and sort of a way to look at things more broadly. Andy reaches out to them and says... He likes their content. He wants to help them any way he can. Right. That's when Andy realizes that the thread is multiple people. It's a pretty big organization, no less. It's 11 people. It's people who all have certain specialties, but no one knows each other's names so that they can't like influence each other. Yeah. He has an option to join, but... You have to pay certain dues to join based on your income level. 
which, like a sliding scale, that's pretty good. But the problem is Andy has so much money now that he's been listening to the Book of Good Times Yeah. that the fee to get in is a million dollars. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of a big, like, woo, that's a lot of money. Even if you did just make a hundred million dollars. I think at the end of this particular chapter, he hasn't made a decision about whether or not he's going to join. He was looking for advice from friends and stuff before he actually does it. It's almost the end of the middle where he actually does end up making the decision. So, yeah. It's one of, like, the last two chapters, I believe. But by the halfway point, he does end up committing to putting that much money into it, and he becomes number 12 in their little group. Right. But then Miranda gets a call saying, hey, we want to fly you out to Puerto Rico. We're going to interview you for the position. And I feel like that's when the guilt really sets in for her. Like, she was already feeling kind of guilty about possibly working for them. But now it's like, oh, this could be a real thing. And she ends up having to talk to multiple people to get convinced to actually do it. And they fly her from where she is in the San Francisco Bay Area to Miami. And then from Miami takes a private plane with two other people who are going for interviews. And the person who's conducting the interviews is also there to take the plane to Altus. Let's say not to Puerto Rico. No, it ends up being Valverde. Yeah. Which I didn't know where that was. I, I think that's the point. Yeah. Most people don't, apparently. Not only in the book world, but also in real life. Yeah. On the plane, they're all discussing, well, what do you think Altus is doing? And this is sort of like a test, like a trick question for the interviewer. And Miranda's really the only one that gets it right. Yeah. Basically that they didn't build a link to enable, like, brain-powered computer stuff. Basically, you found one from the thing that Carl created when he created the dream. But there she learns about how isolated they are in Valverde and the fact that they have to give up their phones. They're not allowed to use technology, really, because they don't want people to find out what they're doing and quote-unquote privacy and stuff. And she ends up getting offered the job, which she kind of has to take at this point because she's stuck on an island with all these people. Yeah, the only way that she can even go into the next room is by accepting the job, though. Like, that's what was super intense about it. It was like... If you want to see what we're actually doing here, you have to sign this contract with a non-disclosure agreement included and all this other stuff. Saying that you'll stay here for a whole year on this island. You're trapped with very little outside world interaction. It's like what once every two weeks you could send a text out to family or friends going like, I'm okay. That has to be under this amount of characters. Yeah. Yeah, that's not sketchy. And while she's doing that in Valverde, you have Maya who is trying to find a way to waste three weeks in this small town. She does it, and on the day she's supposed to return back to this motel on the far side of the motel, she's just wasting time watching shows, listening to podcasts, when all of a sudden a door bangs open, and like bangs open, and Rick Astley's Never Gonna Give You Up is playing from inside the room that is suddenly backlit. Yeah. And that's the... End of her chapter and the beginning of only the second April chapter in the book thus far. Which, I gotta be honest, I kind of enjoyed the fact that April was gone, like, so long. (laughs) And part of that is I don't like April. Like, it's not, she's not supposed to be a likable character. The thing is, this chapter isn't even really that, like, around April. It's, like, more April trying to figure out where the hell she is. Right. 
you have April trying to not only figure out where she is, but when she is, how she is, and what she is. Yeah, like missing body parts all over the place. Like she reaches up for her face and she can't feel it, you know, that kind of stuff. And that's really horrifying. Yeah. Like, that's what I imagine waking up during heart surgery would be like. Like, I like, feel what like. What are you that guys kind doing of, in there? That same kind of like body horror moment. Yeah. And like, it's nothing explicitly like graphic, I feel like, but it's enough to like freak you out. Yeah. We come to realize in this chapter that Carl has been putting April back together. Yeah. With some of that iridescent rock stuff that Maya had found. Fun times. And eventually April wakes up and she's got, I don't want to call them prosthetics because they're not, like it's just part of her body now. Yeah. Covering most of her left side, both her legs, her left arm, left side of her face. And she's sort of losing it. Like she's about to snap, except you have Carl repressing her emotions whenever possible because it's a lot to deal with. Go figure. Oh, and we also saw the monkey. Yeah, he, well, Carl comes in different ways, which is super creepy. So you have the monkey, you have like the Alexa style device. Yeah. And it it just seems super weird, you know. I think part of it's just silliness for silliness sake on Hank's part. Truly. But I think part of it's also because there are moments throughout the book that they need Carl to actually like move around and do stuff. And if you don't have Carl operating a monkey and talking out of a watch around his neck, then it's not going to happen. Right. I don't know why they chose monkey and not something else. Probably because it's got more flexibility in its hands. Well, who doesn't like monkeys? I'd be cool if I woke up with a monkey. I'd be like, whoa, this is weird. Why is the monkey talking to me? But then I'd be like, this is really cute. It's a monkey. Yeah. I feel like I connected with, like, monkey Carl. Yeah. More than, like, like samurai Carl? No, he's pretty cool, too. I like Carl. Even though he's kind of not great. I don't know. I would argue he's pretty great. He just saved her life and but brought her back But he makes all together. of these decisions without actually checking in with people, which that's a very April thing to do. But Well, and, and you got to think, too, like April really wasn't in the right state to be making decisions for her own health. Like she should have been dead, completely dead. She was dead. We call it what it is. And Carl brought her back. Yeah. I mean, missing half your face. I got to say you're probably dead. Not probably. Or a DC villain. Yeah. Right, that's DC. Two-Face, yeah. Okay. Go me. But basically, Carl and April are having, like, conversations about what's going on, what's been happening. Yeah. Basically trying to catch up to speed. And Carl wants to keep asking her questions to check on her cognitive ability. They're pretty easy questions at first. Like, there's pretty stupid questions. Then she's like, I would never have known that on the more complex ones. But eventually she gets to ask him a question, which is, why are you here? He's like, well, that's sort of a long story. And she's like, I need to hear a long story. Go ahead. And that's when we get the first Carl chapter. And Carl's explaining where Carl came from. It's sort of hard to explain. So he's talking about he was born on January 5th of 1979. And that... That's not a perfect analog, but of course, that's roughly when he started to exist. And he discusses that this was his first of five, what he calls awakenings, or like evolutions, you could call it. Yeah, his growths. Yeah, and he, at that point, didn't know who his parents were, didn't know anything about him, didn't know how he was, or it was created. But it seems like he was flung in pieces toward Earth, where he began to assemble. This feels like the start of 
a sci-fi movie, an alien sci-fi movie, which I guess is the point. And then the assembly process was, like, via, like, small bacteria. Yes. So, like, it wasn't a quick process, I would imagine. But the thing that I thought was interesting is that he's got memories from before he was assembled. So, like, other generational, like, memories, ancestral memories. But he began to exist inside of a cell of Pelagibacter, which is a bacteria. And he sort of uses them as host cells and gains energy through their outputs. And then the understanding is that he goes on to jump from Pelagibacter to other things that are more complex. So kind of like a virus. Right. And he worked his way up into being able to do all these sorts of things and being super powerful. He evolved and evolved and evolved and evolved and evolved till it was just like, I am the all-powerful. Right. Carl. And then he had his, what he calls his third awakening after he became this sort of more powerful thing. And it was a desire for knowledge. And because he basically is a computer but not... He ended up expanding to include the whole planet and to gain knowledge from all these different parts of the world. From all the cultures and all that kind of stuff. Which he kind of gives the ability to pass on to April, May a little bit as well. Which we find out a little bit later. We sort of find out here that he's been controlling April while he's been rebuilding her. And she's not happy about that. Because who would be? To the point where like he's able to just shut her down. If she gets out of control. Which he does later on, yeah. Yeah. And at a certain point, she starts to just get fed up with the nonsense of being, like, held like a captive, more or less. He is still questioning her with, like, what's your favorite movie and stuff like this. And she's supposed to be asking him questions back. And she's asking why she was picked. And it's because she provided the highest chance of survival based on all of these simulations that Carl has run. Billions of simulations, Turns out it was 70 quadrillion that he had run, and she was the one who created the highest likelihood that humanity would survive. And then while they're still in this questioning phase, he asks, who was Ronald Reagan's wife? And she's trying to, like, poke around in what most people would call, like, a brain desk. Like, I have this information somewhere in my brain. Let me look for it. And that's when she vomits on the monkey and passes out. Poor monkey. I love that when she wakes up, she immediately shouts, though, Nancy Reagan. (laughs) It took me two seconds in my brain to get that. I was like, oh, yeah, it's Nancy Reagan. Yeah. But then not only does she say the answer to the question, she lists off a ton of facts about Nancy Reagan, Ronald Reagan, all this stuff. And um, she's like, why do I know so much about Nancy Ray and Carl? Yeah. And he's trying to avoid the question. She basically has a Wikipedia in her brain now. Well, she's... Parts of her brain was so damaged that Carl had to find ways to fix it that did not include her maintaining all of her humanity in her brain. So her mind has new abilities, and she has accessed her link which is basically her connection to his processing power. So if she ever needs information, she just has to basically close her eyes and look for it, and she'll find it. Right. 
But, like, he's trying to explain that he's not, as this sort of, like, alien species, he doesn't know how to limit April. He doesn't know what the right limitations are for human mind or the human body. So, like, her legs are stronger. Her arm is stronger. So her brain also has better processing power and ability to transmit and receive data. Right. That's really the moment when she starts to lose it on him. And she's just so mad about it and mad about the fact that he had to guess about a lot of things to keep her alive or revive her. She's asking why he would even do that. And he said, the alternative was leaving you incomplete, which means dead. Right. Take it or leave it, basically. And so she gets mad and she just is shouting, I'm not human anymore. I'm not human. And breaks the door and leaves. And that's when Rick Astley is singing, never going to give you up. And we go back to that flash forward kind of scene from Maya's chapter. Which is where Maya and April end up connecting. connecting. And meanwhile, back at the ranch, you've got, or in Valverde, <laughs> as it ranch. were. At the Altus compound. Yes. You have Miranda and her other new recruits who are all meeting up with Dr. Road to finally get to experience some of what Altus has been working on. Yep. And so they're all getting hooked up with VR gear and, like, stuff to check your respiration and your heart rate and make sure you don't die in the chair. In a recliner, no less. Yes. Lazy boys. Very comfy. Yeah. And it's an experience that ends up pulling your mind out of your body, basically. Your consciousness outside your body. Yeah. And... Two of them are fine, but one is not. Yeah, she's basically more or less completely fine. Then you have the one dude that's kind of like, eh, it wasn't great for me. But then the other person is just losing it. Just I think the reason that the other guy didn't look great when they were having the conversation was seeing his friend go through it. I don't think he actually had any problems. Yeah. But you had one guy who they were calling incompatible with the technology. Yeah. So basically when they tried to pull his consciousness out of his body and into this VR set, it basically told him that his body was all messed up. And, like, his elbows are where his ears are, and his eyes are in his knees and stuff like that. And so he got very sick and threw up on the floor. He's like, can we not tell them? Can can we just pretend it all worked? And it's like, when you're not on it all the time, people are going to know. But okay. Yeah. Here's to hoping your job is, like, janitor. (laughs) It's not, but it doesn't require him to go into the Altus open space. So he's really fine. Yeah, he's going to be able to do his job. He's just not going to be able to do the thing that everybody else does. Right, getting to explore this new technology and what it offers. Right. And after they go through that, Miranda bumps into Peter Petrowicki. And by ran into, I mean he was waiting Literally for Literally waiting the for them, there. yeah, as soon as they finished the thing they were doing. So they could finish their conversation about why she hates him and why he decided to let her stay and work for him. And he lays out that she's under, like, crazy security scrutiny, though, like, being watched more than it any other person. It comes across like a threat. Yeah. It's like, so don't screw it up, otherwise we'll know. Which I can imagine somebody like Miranda is just having absolute anxiety breakdown after she hears that. Of course. Yeah. But then that's when we get to Maya's chapter, and they actually do connect Maya and April. And April's mad and is just, like, telling Maya to drive, get out of here. And she ends up getting pulled over by a cop. She's speeding. Well, yes. Go figure. But it turns out that the cops in the car are playing fish, 
to try to get to this unexplained prize at the end of this little scavenger hunt. Yeah. They've put Maya in cuffs and April's getting out of the car. And it turns out that April ends up overpowering these two guys because not only is Fish telling them to get April May, it's telling them to kill April May. Yeah. And so she overpowers them, cuffs them together, and lets Maya out and is like, get the heck out of here. But we also, in this chapter, besides all that action happening, have the part where Maya's like, April, these are cops. I'm a black woman. I have to follow these protocols. Yeah. Even though they are in a life-threatening situation and April knows it, Maya has that so ingrained in her that she can't do anything other than what she's been told she has to do which I think is an important conversation to have, given that April is a white woman and Maya is not. Right. I think that's like the first glimpse you get as well of her like using the information systems to get information about the police officers. And their wives and and everything like that. Yeah. Real creepy. Again, big brother stuff. And they end up going to Derek's place, who is the coffee shop owner in town that Maya's talked to and become friends with over the three weeks. over the three weeks that she was there, or almost four weeks at that point, I would imagine. And they end up buying one of their cars and also their gardening book, which is on the table. I thought that was another one of those, like, added for silly moments of mm-hmm. silly I don't know if it comes up to anything later, but uh, maybe she takes on gardening in the final 50 pages. Well, we know that Maya enjoys gardening, so like... Yeah, the potato, the potato plant, yeah. And they also bring out Pop-Tarts and some coffee so that they have something to eat while they're planning and discussing all of this. They also end up driving with the car they just bought and the damaged car that Maya has been using. So that they can abandon it somewhere without it getting tracked back to Derek and his family, which is considerate. What restaurant did they stop at? It was Arby's, wasn't it? Wendy's. Wendy's. I knew it was one of the E's. I couldn't remember which. There in that parking lot, moved everything into the Chevy and went through the drive-thru and got some food. And then they ended up stealing money out of an ATM because... I wouldn't say they. I would say April April May stealing stealing money money from the ATM. Because she goes, so how much money did you take out? And she goes, this amount of money was like $10,000 or something like that, right? And she's like, what? Isn't there like a limit? (laughs) And they're texting in their group chat with everyone. Just letting her know that they're going to be off the grid for a little bit. Right. Well, when they say they, I mean, like, just Maya. Like, Maya wasn't like, by the way, I have April. But they decide they're going to go to Warren, Vermont, with a population of 1,780. Kind of makes sense. Not that many people there. At which point, April throws the phone out the window. Yeah. And then we get our next Carl chapter, which is him discussing life between his third and fourth awakening where he was creating a planet-wide network of hijacked living cells that took a long time, and he explains that it's not an easy process despite how powerful he is. Yeah, because if you change too much stuff in an ecosystem, it goes to hell in a handbasket. Exactly. He had to walk the fine line. He basically said, for every calorie of energy he steals, he has to give it back somehow, or he considers himself just a disease. Yeah. He also ended up finding out that he has rules to follow now that he didn't have before. And he doesn't know where they came from, but they are impossible for him to violate. 
Yeah. They include not being able to force a person to do something, not altering their system secretly, and every action needed to be something that the person was aware of. Otherwise, Carl would become a god. It's true. And between the Third and Fourth Awakening, he was considered tragically analytical, and everything was just to create a plan. And during this time, Carl created the dream and ran simulation after simulation to narrow down how they would present themselves to the world, who to choose, and all the quadrillions of simulations. Yeah. I couldn't imagine just, like, the time it would take just to sit there and be like, okay. What about if we do it this way? And Carl then enacted their plan, but it was only after the Fourth Awakening that Carl realized in terror what they had done. Because in the Fourth Awakening, Carl realized they were built to love you. Yeah. All of you. All of humanity. Even the crappy ones. Even Peter Petrowicki. And then we finally get to the part where Andy is committing to give money to the thread and yep. become one of them. One of us. And it's in this first conversation that some big news had dropped in the thread, which was that Five had heard whispers of a game, which is fish, and then it seemed to be any sort of like... A beta? Yeah, and of the Altus free well, space or open space. I don't think they knew it at that time, but that's what it ends up being. Yeah. But basically, five found a way to get in. And because at that time, there weren't a ton of people who had 8K virtual reality headsets. headsets. Yeah. Five was going to be one of the few who could do it. And then Andy, who is 12, also has an 8K rig because, of course, he does. Well, he's making $100 million, so, you know. So he also ends up downloading Altus Open Space for his rig. Yeah. And then we get to see what someone who doesn't work for the company experiences when they go into the Altus Open Space. They're basically creators, kind of like Minecraft, where like nothing's been created, create it. Yes, exactly. And it's funny because the assistant in there is called Alta. And at first, Andy's upset with it because it looks like April, May. And then Alta explains that what you're seeing is what you think an attractive person looks like. Yeah. And it's like, oh, whoops. My subconscious is not working for me here. Yeah. I thought that was a little funny. Yeah. I mean, it's true. The book does say all over the place that April, May is attractive. So yeah, no one blames you, Andy. But he doesn't have the problem with being incompatible, so he's fine to use the space to create things and sell them. And the whole point is that the top 50 creators are going to get the first access to the real Altus. Private servers, yeah. The premium Altus space. Right. But of course, there's no explanation for why you should want this or what makes this better than the regular open space. It's just... Yeah. Only 50 people are allowed, so because of scarcity, everyone wants it. Yeah, like 50, people's a, 50 people a week or something like that, right, is what it was based off of? Something like that, yeah. yeah. But he ends up making a breezy day, breezy spring day. What because somebody beat him to the blue sky and the outside with yeah. the grass. So. Someone had created outside, so he made a breezy spring day, yeah. which he put on the market and listed it at five altacoin and at that moment, it was around $2.50. Yeah, which was like half the price of what the person was selling the previous just outside. Yeah, because he needed to get on that 50-person list. Yeah. And then we get to April's chapter in Vermont where they've rented out a cabin. 
Yep, in that small town. And then the crazy person decides it's a great idea to knock on the door and April May loses it. The person is coming not just to knock on the door. They're sent by Fish right. to try to at least take April May, if not kill her, but they have a gun, so yeah. we're assuming. And we also have Carl in his monkey form showing up at around the same time. Yeah. But the guy with the gun has never shot a gun before, so he ends up shooting Maya. Yeah. So everyone's losing their minds. April is putting her hand on it, applying pressure, telling Carl to call someone. And part of her hand is melding into Maya's body to deal with the wound, which was real creepy. Yeah. Kind of like a liquid Terminator moment. But the guy is still there while this is happening. And so April ends up turning around and like she's imagining what she's going to do with her like non-breakable hand to Um, his face. Yeah, exactly. And that's when we find out that Carl can operate April May's body and just puts her out like a light. And the guy ends up driving away. Lucky for him. Right? Maya's recovered enough at this point that Monkey Carl asks her to drive the car so they can get out of there. Yeah. End up going to like a school. Yes, they do. Yeah. In the boiler room, no less. Exciting stuff. And Maya's like, why are we here? And Carl says, because it's unpredictable. Yeah. Carl ends up letting them in. They go and get settled in the boiler room. It's pretty much where it wraps up. After Carl turns into the robot and carries her down the flight of stairs. Well, you also have a moment between Maya and Carl where she just is telling him how it is. I don't forgive you. I don't like you. Yeah. And Carl says they know. But Carl's like, well, what do you need? Because there's food and water here. And all she wants is a grow lamp for the potato, which they still have in the potted plant. Yeah. And then that's where the section ends, the halfway point. It's kind of a weird ending point. In comparison to the last one, I feel like. I had you stop there originally just because that's exactly the halfway point in the book, pretty much. Or yeah. as close as you can get. But then upon reading it this week, I'm like, I could have made you read another chapter. But then I feel like it would have been such a dramatic cliffhanger. You would have been mad at me. So I didn't. I'm glad. Yeah. But believe it or not, a lot more stuff happens. No kidding. In the there's back a, half. There's a half of a book still. I would imagine things are going to happen. Even more happens. Even more happens in the back half of the back half. Yes. Yeah. But this episode is apparently very long because I don't know how to shut up about new releases or Shadow and Bone. Or this book, for that matter. I guess. They were all very long. So if you stuck with us this whole time, we appreciate you. And if you want to hear more weird ramblings from me, you can always check us out on all our social media, which should be linked in the show notes. And we'll catch you next week for a sports episode, guys. Bye. Bye.